0: All right, um, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Mean Girls. Um, yeah. When I was, a, I was a sophomore in college, and no, I was a freshman in college, and I, I, was, I was begging my friends, I was like, yo, please go see Mean Girls with me, and they were like, no, we're not doing that. And, and I, I told one of my friends, I said, if you don't love this movie, I will pay you back for the ticket. And we went and saw the movie, and he was like, I was going to tell you, no matter what, I hated the movie because I wanted to go to the movie for free. I was like, I can't lie to you. I loved it. Um, Mean Girls was great. And one of my favorite scenes in Mean Girls is the first time that Katie walks into the cafeteria and Janice starts to explain all the different groups and like where they sat in the cafeteria, like iconic movie scene. But she's going through, um, I don't think I can say all the names of the groups without uh, probably getting fired. Um, But the ones I can say are the plastics, the girls who eat their feelings, the girls who don't eat anything at all, the JV jocks, the preps, the varsity jocks, the ROTC guys, the JV cheerleaders, the desperate wannabes and the burnouts, right? And it's hilarious because they're all these just massive like over the top caricatures of all the different types of people. But, Every single one of those groups had very specific markers of, like, these people are in and these people are out. Uh, They all dressed a certain way. They did certain things. They acted certain ways that showed whether they were in or out with whatever group they were trying to be a part of. Uh, And it all brilliantly comes back around later in the movie when, after uh, gaining too much weight for a long-running prank, um, Regina George, the very leader of the plastics, couldn't sit with the rest of them because on Wednesdays we were pink. Right? She She was out of the group. It's a hilarious scene. It's a great movie. Go watch Mean Girls. Maybe we'll do an RF movie night. Um, but I think this all connects with us on a very deep and personal level because we all are wondering, do I belong? Like, do I fit in somewhere? And, and, and as we're trying to figure out life in college and we're trying to figure out where we fit on this campus, we, we look around us and there, and there are groups that like, Uh, well, like this group, they do these things and they don't do these things. And this group does these things and they don't do these things. And these people dress a certain way. And, you know, maybe sometimes these rules are written, maybe sometimes they're not. Um, but we're all wrestling with this question of, am I in or am I out? And, and then further, it boils down to this question of like, what do I do when I'm out? What do I do when I'm on the outs with my group? And how do I get back in? And y'all, this is actually a major question for all of human history. Um, the Hebrew people uh, have been enslaved for 400 years. If you, if you know the order of the book of the Bible, um, Leviticus comes after Exodus. Uh, because what's happened in Exodus is the people of Israel have been enslaved for 400 years. And now they're free, um, but they don't know what to do. Like If you've ever, if you've ever uh, known somebody who has uh, struggled with something like addiction... Uh, you know there's a much deeper need than just to say, hey, stop doing that. Hey, stop drinking or stop doing whatever. Uh, you know that, that when you're walking with someone going through recovery from addiction, uh, you know that they are rediscovering every aspect of a new life without whatever it is uh, they're enslaved to. And, and, and God's people, these recovering slaves from Egypt, they're going through the same thing. They are learning what it looks like to live a life of freedom. And so God is telling them in the book of Leviticus, hey, this is what a life with me looks like. This is what a life of freedom looks like. And we said last week, um, if you were here last week, you heard that Leviticus is a part of God's unfolding story of salvation that plays out through the entire Bible. It begins in the garden and it actually ends in a garden. And everything happens kind of in between for how we get started there and how we get back. But Leviticus is primarily dealing with the question of how will we live as a redeemed and yet still sinful people in the presence of a holy God. That's the whole question. Exodus shows us the great lengths to which God would go to free his people. And Leviticus shows us the great lengths that God would go to keep his people free. That this is what Leviticus is laying out for us. And it begins... With these five sacrifices that are laid out in Leviticus 1 through 7. So for the next this week and the next two weeks, we're gonna be looking at these sacrifices. Leviticus 1 through 7, uh, five sacrifices, we see the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the purification offering. And tonight we're starting with the burnt offering, and next week we'll look at grain and peace. And here's the good news for tonight. Right, my my desire for you every week is to be able to hear and to walk away from large group knowing, okay, I heard the good news and it was this. And here's the good news: God accepts another in your place. God accepts another in your place. And here's here's how we're gonna see that because we see that the burnt offering represents the core of the entire sacrificial system, which shows us that our relationship with God is totally consuming, it is entirely on his terms. And it is ultimately fulfilled in something greater than these sacrifices. So if you like to take notes, those are the points. Totally consuming. Um, look at what happens to the sacrifice. Madison just read it for us. Um, its throat is slit, and it's completely drained of its blood, and it is burnt completely to ash. Yes, it's violent, but that's what we're dealing with. We see that it is completely burned to ash. If you look through uh, the other sacrifices, they're not all completely burned up. Um, some of them are um, some of them are actually given to the priest or to the community to, to provide a meal, but this uh, this sacrifice is completely consumed by fire. And actually, the Hebrew word there is is uh, a word that sounds like challah, um, which uh, we get um, the very the very dark word uh, "holocaust," right? That 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 it's suggesting that something is completely consumed and completely burned up. But then we see that it's completely drained of its blood. And and for the Hebrews, um, blood was considered the very life of something. To spill the blood of an animal or to spill the blood of another person is to to rob them of life. And so what we see God laying out for his people is that as uh, the the, the blood of the animal is drained and the animal is completely burned to ash, um, it's... It's complete. It's total. It's whole, and and again, every other or the other sacrifices they have certain uses for the leftovers, but this one doesn't. The question is why? Why is this one different? Uh, And the first the first reason is uh, in one. uh, I'm I'm quoting this definition, so it's not because I'm smart. It's just because I learned how to read, sort of. Um, But by giving the whole animal to the Lord, offerers acknowledge that their sinfulness before a holy God was so great that only a full and costly ransom payment would suffice. That they're coming to God to say, I am so messed up, I'm so different than you, I'm so separate than you, that something has to be completely and wholly consumed in order for me to be able to be in your presence. And we'll get more specific with that in a few weeks. But did you notice that this Uh, This particular sacrifice, it doesn't mention anything about sin. It just says when you sacrifice, when you come into the presence of the Lord. Because the Bible is just treating sin as a basic reality. That every one of us is dealing with it. And this is written to God's people. So like even the redeemed set free people of God are still dealing with this burden. And to be in the presence of God at all requires death. And what we see in the Old Testament is that when God shows up and the people aren't prepared for it, they die. Um, God told Moses that no one could see his face and live. And this shows us that for us to come in the presence of God is a, is a heavy and serious and actually dangerous thing for us to assume that we just get to do. But the second thing that this sacrifice shows us is that it is showing wholehearted devotion. Devotion. It's saying to God that I'm all yours. It's saying, hey, I need you desperately. Or it's singing what we just sang, I surrender all, everything that I have, I give it to you because you are the only one that is worthy of a sacrifice of this complete nature. See, I hope that as we we discuss this, that the picture of the sacrifice starts to get a little clearer. Uh, Because in the burnt sacrifice, God is saying you, being a sinful and not holy human being, have to die to be in my presence. But instead of your death, I will accept a contrite heart, a sorry heart, and this animal as a substitute. And what the sacrificer is saying to the Lord is, all I have is yours. Do with it whatever you want. Because you're God and you have the right and you have the claim on that. But look at what happens once that sacrifice is accepted. Several times in the passage that we just read, uh, Moses describes it as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it gets repeated over and over and over again that this is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That these sacri- The first three sacrifices that we're listing, they're pleasing aromas to the Lord. Think about that idea. Think about a, a, a pleasing aroma. Like what's the smell that when you're, you know, you're out walking around or something's going on and you just smell that thing and it just takes you back somewhere. For me... Uh, it is, um, it's cigarette smoke. Okay. Here's why. When I was a kid, uh, we would go to my mom's, um, my mom's family reunion, her side of the family. They're all incredibly musical people. And what would happen is every night, uh, we'd be out in the Mississippi Delta, uh, and every night the sun would go down and all my uncles and cousins, they would get out their packs from Marlboro Reds and they would get out their old guitars and we would stay up all night singing. We'd sing old gospel songs. We'd sing old Simon and Garfunkel songs. Uh, the House of the Rising Sun was a big hit. But y'all, every single time, every single time that I smell cigarette smoke, especially when it's warm outside, I go right back to the Mississippi Delta with my cousins and my aunts and my uncles, and and actually a lot of them have, have actually died now, probably because of the cigarette smoke. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but it, but it but it but it but it takes it takes me somewhere where. Uh, life was beautiful and life was easy and, and, and it was just, it's, such a pleasant, uh, it's just such a pleasant thing to think about. And so what does this mean? It means that God does not ever look at this sacrifice when it's offered rightly, begrudgingly, or out of a sense of duty. Because I think a lot of us have this idea that when we come to God, it's like, okay, he's going to accept me, but that's kind of what he has to do. Like He doesn't really want to, and he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really want to be around me, but he's God and he has to. So he, he might not be that happy with me, but, but he, I guess he loves me. No. What this means is that God delights in his people coming to him. God longs for his people to come to him with their brokenness, with their sin, with their shame, and to say, hey, this is yours. He delights in that. It is a smell that is pleasing to him. See, what would, what would, it be, what would happen on, on this campus if, instead of like on the Irie, like there being picnic tables, what if there was just a giant sacrificial pyre that 24-7 was just burning animals, right? What would, that, what would that do to us psychologically? I think one thing it would do is it would remind us that... Um, Yeah, like we're pretty screwed up people. But if what Leviticus 1 is saying is true, and spoiler alert, it is, it would also remind us that this is a smell that pleases the Lord. That this is God's people tangibly calling out to him to say, God, we need you. And it is God saying back to his people, I know, and you have me. That this is what the burnt offering is saying, it would humble us, but it would remind us that God doesn't just love us, he actually likes us, and he delights in us. It would remind us that our sin deserves death, total consumption of the sinner, but that God receives it joyfully. Listen, I am am not a perfect father by any stretch of the imagination, Um, and I find myself annoyed with my kids way more than I should be, but... If our house ever burns down, I am running inside to get all the artwork that they've ever made for me. It is objectively terrible. (laughs) Like, if you've ever seen it, it's like, what is this? And yet I would die to have it because of who gave it to me. Because that's how much they mean to me. And that's what it means when God delights in our sacrifices. That he actually does, like we see in Christ, that he does run into a burning building to get us. And that's what these sacrifices are showing us. But the second thing that we see is that these sacrifices are entirely on his terms. Right? Notice in verse 2 that God does not say, hey, if the people bring sacrifices. He says when they bring sacrifices. He says you will do this. Um, and God lays out very specifically what it's going to be. It's going to be a male without blemish. And then there's all this stuff that the sacrificer has to do. And then when we get into the priest's role in all this, the priest has like he has to put on these special clothes and like do all this crazy stuff. Like it is very specific how these uh, sacrifices are to be offered because our relationship with God is only on His terms. It is entirely up to him how we come to him. Um, and, 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 and what and what you see is that even in the process of this sacrifice being made, the, the sacrificer had to do this whole thing where they like put their hand on the head of the animal and like leaned on it and put their weight on it. And um, it's this whole, it's this whole crazy thing. And, and it's 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 rigid, yes, absolutely. But it's also gracious. And here's how it's gracious. The first thing that God is doing is he is giving his people a definitive way to come into his presence. That's the that's the mean girls scene from earlier. Right. Like what other things give you those clear markers to say, hey, you're in or you're out. What other groups do you have? What other professors do you have that you can sit there and say, OK, I know I'm in or I know I'm out based on X, Y and Z. Uh, and and um, <laughs> I love this because uh maybe one of the few things on this campus that should have very clear rules and regulations, the financial aid office, right? If, if, <laughs> if, if one of you has complained about that to me, all of you have, right? And you can't figure it out. You absolutely can't figure it out, right? Theoretically, you should get answers there, but you can't. But in these sacrifices, God is saying, hey, here's the very clear, like very obvious, very direct path to get to me. But then second, did you notice the provisions that were made for the sacrifice? You could bring a bull, a goat, or a bird. Still had to be without blemish. Still had to be completely um, consumed. But why the different animals? Simply put, not everybody could afford a bull. Like, that was a sign of wealth. Um, Not everybody could afford a goat. That was a sign of, like, middle class, I guess. I don't know, like... I kind of see, I kind of see like a bowl of like, like a brand new like Toyota Land Cruiser or Ford Bronco, and then like the goat is like the old Land Cruiser or Ford Bronco, which I personally love more. But anyway, um, but the, tur- the turtle loves like the Toyota Camry of the offerings, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um, I have a Camry, so it's it's paid for. Um, no, what God is saying in these different levels of sacrifice is He's saying, look. You, you, you will not buy my favor. You will not buy my forgiveness if all you have to offer is a turtle dove, which Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, oh, and by the way, that's the sacrifice Jesus' family brought when they took Jesus to the temple, so there's that. But Jesus says what? These are, these are what, like 10 for a penny? Like they're, they're effectively worthless. And God is saying, this is an acceptable sacrifice. If that's all you can afford, come to me anyway. No one is excluded from the worship of God. No one is excluded based on economic status from communion with God. But why these details? By selecting an animal from the herd without blemish, the worshiper was saying uh, God was worth the best that he had to bring. This is, not a, this is not a statement of gender roles or anything like that. But when your livelihood was based on how many like, high-quality bulls or goats you had, like, you kind of needed some really good male bulls and goats. I guess there's only male bulls. You kind of needed some high-quality bulls and, and, and male goats, right? Right? You wanted the biggest and the strongest because that would mean you would have a healthier flock. And what this sacrifice is saying is that belongs to God. That's what you're bringing to him. God is saying, uh, in effect, the greater the cost, the greater the love. Um, That was what my my campus minister said about this passage. And uh, um, I... uh, I mentioned this last week. No, I mentioned this at Vespers. I didn't say it last week. Uh, My favorite band in the world is a band called the Turnpike Troubadours. And they have this fantastic song called Diamonds and Gasoline. And he says in the chorus, he says, I would buy for you a diamond or myself some gasoline. Because if I can't afford you, darling, then I can't afford to dream. And what he's saying is, if I can't give you the best that I have to offer, then I just need to leave. And this is what the sacrifice is saying, that we give the best to God. And by placing a hand on the sacrificed animal, the worshiper was identifying closely with the animal that was about to be killed. The word actually means something more like uh, pressing down or leaning on with heavy pressure. And it was a symbolic way of saying, I am this animal. Like this animal that is going to the altar, it represents me. It is an extension of me and it is going to the altar to die. And so the worshiper, as he's watching this, would see himself going to the altar to die. You see, God is uh, communicating and showing us that he is holy and we're not. And that if we're going to come to him, we must approach him on his terms and only on his terms. And the rigid nature of this ritual reminds us of that. But finally, this points us to a greater reality. Um, The book of Hebrews is basically a commentary on the book of Leviticus. So if if you're ever like, like, if you're doing that thing where you're like, I'm totally going to read the Bible in a year, and you get to February, and you're like, what am I doing? Because this is confusing, because that's when you get to Leviticus. Like, read Hebrews alongside with it. It's wonderful. Great thing to do. But in Hebrews 8, we are told that these laws are a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And in Hebrews 9, we get this. That he, being Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, the point of these sacrifices in Leviticus was not for the worshiper to have faith that this bull or goat or bird could ever secure peace with God. The point of the sacrifices was to remind the worshiper that peace with God was entirely dependent on his terms, not ours, not theirs. And look, you may may not even be aware that you're doing this yet, but I guarantee you that you are. You're walking around hoping that your faith is going to be accepted by God. And so often we fall into this trap, myself included, that because of how sincere I was when I completed whatever act of faith it was, then God will accept me. Like, if I have just absolutely, like, crushed it in my quiet times and in my prayer life for the last, like, I don't know, however many days in a row, then, um, you know, let let me, like, Instagram post about it. And then, like, hope that maybe, like, I believe in Jesus, but just in case, Maybe God will look at like my, my streak on you version or whatever and be like, yeah, this guy's killing it. He's in. Maybe you think about that like like how hard you went in worship, like how hard, you know, like really like really like praising and dancing and all that kind of stuff. Like whatever. Um maybe you're thinking about thinking about like, okay, like ah, like I know Jesus loves me, but like let me go and like let me go and like share the gospel like a couple more times just to make sure. Um how deep you felt at the last revival or what, what you meant at the first time that you got baptized or the second time that you got baptized, the third time that you got baptized or maybe even the fourth. And these are real like heavy things that we, that we bear. We, we, we say that we believe that God loves us, but, but we're just hoping that that, that, little, that little act of faith, that little thing that we did will get us over the edge. Uh, Horatius Bonner uh, is a theologian from a long time ago. He said this. He said, What should we have said to the Israelites who should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim? And who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had laid them aright on the proper place in the right direction with adequate pressure or in the best attitude? Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb, and yet that he was speaking as if they were? Should we not have told them to be of good cheer? not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched the victim however lightly and imperfectly and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, die for me. The touching had no virtue in itself. The quality or quantity of faith is not the main question for the sinner. It is the object of your faith, not you. What Bonner is saying is that when we do these things, we're putting our faith not in the sacrifice, but in our ability to perform the sacrifice. And if your faith is based on your ability to be faithful, you are going to be an anxious wreck for your entire life. If your faith is entirely based on your ability to be faithful, it's it's just going to be terrible. But the Israelite knew that he was accepted by God because the sacrifice was consumed in his place, not because he was. And this is where Jesus leaps from the shadows, right? That's the name of our whole series is Jesus in the shadows. This is where Christ leaps from the shadows. That these sacrifices went up all day, every day. That that, that that sacrificial power would be in a place that everybody could have seen it, smelled it. The priest never finished his work. And yet Hebrews tells us that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. That he went to the cross, he laid down his life, and he finished the work. See, Hebrews 10 tells us that when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I'm the one who's been completely consumed. By the wrath of God, I am the one who has taken the full weight of the sinner on myself. Jesus, I am the one, uh, I am the lamb without spot or blemish. But the thing that Christ's sacrifice does, that the sacrifice of bulls and goats could never do, is it grants you all of the righteousness of Christ along with it. You see, in this exchange, God sees Christ as the fully consumed sacrifice on the altar, and he sees you as the full righteousness and glory of his son. That's the good news. So we'll wrap it up with this. Um, When I was in college, uh, there was this, there was this pastor. He was, he was pretty famous. Um, I won't say his name, but you can pretty easily look him up um, because I'm going to tell you the name of the book that he wrote. Uh, He wrote a book called Love Wins. And in this book, Love Wins, he was trying to kind of um, present the definitive answer of, of hell for Christians. And, He he, he did not settle the issue. He thought he did, but he didn't. Um, But one of his sub points in the book was he was arguing that Christians need to get past these Old Testament metaphors of sacrifice and blood. That this is just primitive language from a primitive people. He said people did live that way for thousands of years. And there are pockets of primitive cultures around the world that do continue to understand sin, guilt, and atonement in those ways but most of us don't. See, what the first Christians did was look around them and put the Jesus story in language their listeners would understand. And you've probably heard an argument like this before. Like all the Old Testament God stuff, like that's primitive, that's weird, that's old. We don't care about that anymore. Uh, We need to figure out more modern ways uh, to talk about this. We need to get past this idea of blood and guts and fire um, because we're modern, respectable people. And I mean, that's just wrong. Um, and here, like, here's why my, my, campus minister said this, uh, he said, people who don't get the sacrificial system and suppose Christianity to be primitive because of it are simply not thinking clearly for many of you. College is the first time where you learn with real clarity that broken relationships hurt. There are cuts and wounds that are worse than physical cuts and wounds that inflict, uh, that inflict the human heart. The fact that God demands the life of another to have renewed fellowship with us is to say at least that he merely wants to be in a real relationship with us, a relationship that is intimate, vulnerable, and genuine. Again, to quote uh, Turnpike, uh, if you want something bad, you've got to bleed a little for it. You see, no matter how much we might want to run away from that truth, we all know that deep down inside of us, to get the things that we want in life, we have to sacrifice for it. We've got to give something up. And you will not have any comfort or peace in your relationship with God in order to understand that, in order for you to be in with God, to be accepted by Him, someone or something has to die. It has to. It has to be totally consumed by the flame of His holiness. But that's the good news. Because God does not give us a bull or a goat or a turtle dove, He gives us His own Son who did that for us. And so the burnt offering is an invitation for you to see what we just sang in uh, the song, And Can It Be. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You see, because this is true, because w- what's happening in the sacrificial system was true in the Old Testament and it was pointing ultimately to Christ, that because Christ went to the altar of the cross, you can approach the throne of God not not carefully, not cautiously, but with confidence and with faith and with hope that he has accepted you. Because he cannot turn away his son. And If he can't turn away his son, he can't turn away the people that are in him either. Let's pray. Lord thank you for your word thank you for tonight um, thank you for all that you've given us uh, Father I pray that as we as we think about these words as we reflect on what we've heard Father for those of us that uh, maybe we're here tonight and we're believers God would you please um, would you please remind us that you have accepted Christ on our behalf and Lord for those of us that may be here tonight that we don't know we don't, we don't know if we believe this we're struggling with with doubt, or we've never believed before, or whatever, Lord, would tonight be the night that we would begin uh, to think about these things in ways that would show us how much it is that you love us, how much it is that you care for us. Lord Jesus, would you do these things? It's in your name we pray. Amen.